0: As we continue our worship now by coming to the word of the Lord to receive his wisdom and by coming as those uh, who humbly come and recognize, hey, you know what? I need his wisdom. I need his wisdom. We're going to do that by continuing in this study that we started back at the beginning of Advent that we're calling Living in the Rhythm of Grace. And I intentionally point that out this morning because today is the kickoff of the mustard seed campaign. But what I want you to see is that the mustard seed campaign is a part and parcel of the greater, larger effort of learning how, by the power of God's Spirit in community with each other, in accordance with God's Word, to allow the gospel to form us and the gospel to shape us and ultimately to completely overtake us, to become the rhythm or the pattern by which we live as we engage in it daily through our personal worship, as we engage in it weekly through our corporate worship, as we engage in it annually, as we respect the various seasons that have been handed down to us from the ancient Christians of old. We want to so regularly interact with this gospel pattern That it becomes the pattern by which we do everything. It becomes the pattern by which we think, by which we speak, by which we evaluate things. It overtakes us. So to that end, we're going to continue today with this study that we're calling Living in the Rhythm of Grace. And if you were with us at the beginning of this study, you know that at its very beginning, we started at the very beginning of the Bible and we looked for a long time at the world it was. And I call it the world it was because it no longer is. It's the world that started in Genesis chapter 1 that God created and then brought to an end in judgment upon humanity. That's the sober part. In Genesis chapter 7, in the flood of Noah. And then for the last couple of weeks, what have we looked at? We've looked at the world we're living in now. And what we've noticed about this world is that it's exactly like the previous world it started the same way. It will end the same way. Again, that's the sober piece. And it follows the same pattern in getting there. And so then one of the things that we've been dealing with for the last three weeks, and I know you're dying to move off of this, is that just like that world ended in judgment, so also must this one. Why? Because it's of the same nature and character as that world. And guess what? So is God. He's still perfectly holy. He's still perfectly righteous. He's still perfectly just. He even sweats the small stuff. So, not just the big things that we can all look at and go, well, well, clearly the Lord needs to deal with that. No, even little acts of selfishness, little words of deception. Uh oh. So, we've been dealing soberly for the last three weeks with the fact that God must, in the end, bring judgment. But we've been dealing joyously and with great relief, I hope, also with the fact that God also brings deliverance from judgment, even to undeserving people, which is good news. And how? Through the true ark of God, who is Jesus Christ. So in the world that was, we got to the flood story, and what did we see? We saw the people of God get on a great big wooden boat called the ark. And what did the ark do? It transported them above the waters of the flood of the judgment of Almighty God, and it brought them to a new world. What does Jesus do? The same thing. Guys, Jesus, who is God-made man, entered into this world, and on the cross, He received in place of all of those who would claim His sacrifice as the payment for their debt, to the Father. The flood of the judgment of God that you and I deserved. So that when the end comes, and it must, we don't get judgment. We get deliverance and eternal life and where? In a brand new world. And not only do we get that, but so does anybody who puts their faith and trust in Christ. So here's what I want to do. I want to turn to the new world. I want to begin to look at that. I'm going to move off the judgment piece. We had three weeks of that. We're all relieved now. We got that. And I want to move to the new world. I want everybody to see not just what we've been saved from. That's been the past three weeks. But I want us to see what we've been saved for. That's this week and the next two weeks. And I want it to capture you. And I want you to realize that in Christ, not only have you been saved for this, but so also has everyone else that puts their faith in Jesus. So to do that, we're not going to turn to the beginning of our Bible. We're moving away from that. We're going to turn now all the way to the very end of our Bible, where John gives to us, beginning in John chapter 21, his vision of the new heavens and of the new earth, and also he's going to speak of a new city. That's hugely significant because it's a city, as we're all going to see very quickly, that is meant to be compared with the cities of the world in which we live. And you know that because the first thing John does is he begins to reach down into the cities of the world in which we live and he begins to cull out of them. He begins to collect out of them all of the crud that afflict us in these cities and that we afflict other people with in these cities as well. And what he does is he piles it up in the middle of the room like so much manure and he gathers us around that great big pile of crud and he says, do not turn your face from this. Stare at it. Look at it. See it. Take it in. Let it impact you. Let it move you. And then know this. It's gone in the next world. In the next city. And here's why it will no longer exist in the new city. Because the new city that he's describing is not a city. It's not buildings and streets and bridges and glass and steel and brick and mortar. Guys, he's speaking in poetic language. And here's who he's speaking about. If you have faith in Jesus... He's speaking about you. It's a picture of the church coming down out of heaven to inhabit the new heavens and the new earth. And there's no crud in the new heavens and earth, no crud in the new city. Why? Because what he's saying is there's no longer in that place any crud in any of us. And that is a glorious and amazing thought. And so then, as we enter into that text, since this is our eternal end, and not just our eternal end, but the eternal end of everybody who puts their faith and trust in Jesus, and the end hasn't come yet. So, like, we got to get out there. That's the point. Here's the question. All right, well, how do we live today in light of that end? And not just for us, but for everybody else, too. How do we live today in light of that end? How do we live in this world, in light of the world, that we're going to begin to look at this morning? And here, I think, is the simple answer. We live as those who lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus. So with all of that in mind, John says this about the new world in Revelation 21, beginning in verse 1. He says, then I saw a key word, new heaven, and here it is again, new earth. Now, why is that a significant thing? Because here's what he's not saying. He's not saying, I took the old heaven and I took the old earth and I just took it down to the universe junkyard and I disposed of it entirely. And then from scratch, I created a new heaven and a new earth. The word new carries with it the idea of redemption. It carries with it the idea of deliverance. It carries with it the idea of transformation. I took that which was full of crud and I made it perfect is the idea. The heart of God is a redeeming, transforming heart. He'd leave glory on the table if he just scrapped everything and everyone and started from scratch. He's saying, no, no, no. I want you to see my wisdom and how I can take that which is broken, dysfunctional and corrupt. And make it magnificent. And he does that not just with the heavens and earth. He does that with us too. And so just like we saw, this world that we're living in today was born out of the flood of Noah. Out of the previous world that had been cleansed, so also will the new world be born out of this world that will be likewise cleansed and redeemed and transformed. It's magnificent. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And then he says something that, you know, until you understand it, may be a little bit disconcerting for those of us who live here in Fort Lauderdale. He says, and the sea was no more. Okay. So if you're in the yachting business, you're a little nervous at this point, right? You're thinking, oh, good grief. What am I going to do? Okay, that's not what he's saying. He's not saying that there will be no oceans and seas in the new earth. He's speaking poetically. He's talking about us as a city, is he not? So, what does this mean? He's saying, you know what, go back into the Bible and study what the oceans and seas represent. What do they represent in the Bible? And now, know this none of that will be present in the new heavens and the new earth. So, what do they represent? Well, I mean, the best story that I could take you to is the one that we looked at three weeks ago. It's the flood of Noah. The oceans and the seas represent judgment. They represent chaos. They represent death. And more than that, when you begin to read about the Israelites in the Old Testament, here's what you discover. These people were not good with boats. They were not a seafaring people. They stayed away from the coastlands. Why? Because their enemies were awesome on the sea, and they were attacked regularly from it. Curious? What else? Well, when you live in the biblical land, where do the great storms come from? They come up off the Mediterranean from out in the west. They come up onto the land and they afflict you. More than that, what do oceans and seas do? Just sort of in a geographical sense. They divide the land masses and therefore the nations from nations and people from people. John is speaking poetically and he's coming to me and he's coming to you and he's going, hey, listen, I want to tell you something about the new heavens and the new earth. Part of what makes it so amazing is not just what's in it, but what's not in it. So let me start making the pile. No judgment, no death, no chaos, no enemies or threats at all. You know the storms that afflict you in this life? Not anymore. And there is nothing in that world that will divide any of us from one another. It's a marvelous thought. And then he says this in verse 2, and here it is, or really, here we are. He says, I saw the holy city, the sanctified city, the set-apart city, the perfected city. Why is it a perfected city? Because it has awesome buildings and and wonderful steel and glass. Is that what makes our city not perfect? Is it the design? Is it the bridges? Is it the road? No, it's us. The city of man is a reflection of our soul. The reason we have ills is because we're ill. It's a fact. This is the holy city because its people are holy, and its people are the city. There's no crud left. Not a speck, not a molecule. He says, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God to inhabit the new earth. Prepared as a what? Because it tells us that he's talking about us. Prepared as a bride, which everywhere else in the New Testament is metaphorical of the church. It's metaphorical of God's people. We are the bride of Christ. Prepared as a bride, he says, adorned for her husband, whom we all know is Jesus, And so then what is John saying? He's saying, listen, in the end, and this is hard to imagine, like our minds can't fully get this. But it's wonderful. He's saying, in the end, you will be so transformed. You will be so delivered. You will be so perfected. You will be so redeemed that it will be obvious to heaven and earth that you, that we are a fitting companion, equally yoked. Imagine that. To the Lord of glory. And that is worthy of great rejoicing. And so we see that next. Verse three, John says, And I heard a loud voice. It's a rejoicing voice. Judgment is gone. We've entered into the joy of the Lord. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, and I love this, behold, and now notice how many times he says it, the dwelling place of God is where? With man. You're like, what? I'm sorry, I can't get my heart around that. Okay, let me say it again. He, God, will dwell with them and they will be his people. You're like, really? No, tell it to me again because I'm having a hard time getting my heart around that. And God himself, just in case you miss it the first two times, will be with them as their God. And what's so amazing about our God, about our Lord is that because he's infinite, we're not going to have to stand in line to take a number to hang out with him. It's not like you're going to have to, you know, camp out like you do for concert tickets. Oh man, if I could just get in early, I'd get some front row seats. I camped out for a week. That's nuts. It's crazy. I don't know, maybe it's awesome. But it's only awesome if you're in college, okay? If you're my age, that's just nuts. You don't have to do that. Oh, look at this. I can meet with Jesus 386,241 years. From now, it's a Wednesday. At two, he's got me in for five minutes. That's awesome. He's infinite. So 100% of him is available to you, to me, to all of us, 100% of the time. And I want you to notice the first thing that he will do then. As many times as I've looked at this passage, it didn't strike me until like yesterday that, you know what, this is agenda item number one. Notice what he does, verse 4. He says, he will wipe away every tear from, and I'm going to put in the word your, because I want you to personalize it, eyes. He will wipe away every tear from your eyes. Which is really kind of an odd statement in light of what's coming, because like in the next verse, he's going to say, oh, and by the way, there will be no crying in the new heavens and in the new earth. So clearly he's not talking about tears that we shed there. He's talking about tears that we have shed here. And he'll wipe them away from our eyes. Well, how is he going to do that? What does that mean? Like for the Lord to wipe it away, clearly it's not coming back. Would you agree with that? If he wipes it away, he's taking it away. So the thought of that will no longer bring you whatever the sorrow is or the pain or the frustration or the anger or the bitterness or whatever it is that causes you again and again and again and again. And we all do this to relive the things that have made us cry in the past. No, 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 it's gone. The past is set in its right place. And in the future, when you're reminded of those things, if you cry, it will be a tear of joy. Now that's transformation. How does he do that? What is it about tears then that he knows that we need to understand? And I think intuitively we do. I think he understands something, and that is that every tear contains a story. A memory, does it not? It clearly does. And I think what he's implying here is that in that day, agenda item number one, he's going to show us the rest of the story. And I will tell you plainly, and maybe this will irritate a few of you, I have never seen a more beautiful illustration of this idea than what J.K. Rowling has given us in the seventh book of the Harry Potter series. I think that woman is brilliant and incredibly insightful. If you've read the books or if you've seen the movies even, then you remember the scene. It's the scene in which Professor Snape dies. And Professor Snape, by the way, is one of the most heroic characters in the whole of the series. Like he is so amazingly heroic, and nobody knows it until immediately after the scene. Harry doesn't know it. So you're reading the books, he's always the bad guy, isn't he? He's the bad guy, he's the bad guy, he's the bad guy, he's not the bad guy. He's amazing but he's laying there dying. And why is he dying? Because, now think about this, because we were just in Genesis 3. He is dying from the bite of a poisonous, magical snake that speaks and that is possessed by a part of the soul of the clear satanic figure throughout the whole course of this series of books. Does that sound familiar? Her genius is borrowed, but she's brilliant in how she illustrates it. And as he lays there slumped against the wall, dying from... The repeated bites of this snake, which is left. Harry and Ron and Hermione come in. And what does Snape do? He's clearly about to expire. He points to the tears that are streaming down his cheek. And here's what he says, and I quote. He says, collect them, collect them. And Harry, who gets the idea that, you know, I'm supposed to collect these, looks at Hermione, who's got this, you know, magical purse, and he says, Hermione, I need a bottle, I need a bottle. Call forth a bottle. And she calls forth a bottle out of the cavernous depths of her magical purse, and she hands it to Harry. And what does he do? He presses it against the cheek of Professor Snape, and the tears stream down into the bottle. He collects his tears in a bottle. And then what does Snape say? He says, take it to the Ponceve." Now, what is that? It's this magical bowl in which you can literally re-enter your memories. And Harry takes the tears and pours them out in the ponceive and discovers that they contain the memories, the stories of Professor Snape, that he re-enters, he enters into it. And everything makes sense. Everything in his life suddenly makes sense, like the rest of the story is revealed. Now, where in the world does J.K. Rowling get that idea? Because that's borrowed too. She gets it from Psalm 56, verse 8, where we're told that our God collects our tears in His bottle and keeps a record of them, of their story in His book. Because every one of them contains a story. Why? So that He can sit down with us in the new heavens and in the new earth and pour them out into His magical ponceive, if you will, and enter into them with us. And walk us through them and go, I know you didn't think I was here, but I was right here. Do you see me now? I know you had no idea what I was doing in this, but let me show you what I was doing. I was doing this over here with this person, and I was doing this over here with this person. I know that you could not possibly conceive of how this could be good. But I'm the God who delights and reveals his glory by bringing good out of things that you can't conceive. Ways for them to be good. I'm going to wipe that tear away now. For forever, because for forever now, you will praise me for what caused you to cry it. Can you imagine that? That's hard to imagine, isn't it? And yet Paul calls us to imagine things that, well, frankly, he tells us are beyond what our minds are capable of conceiving. And shouldn't that be the case as the finite creatures of an infinite God? It's remarkable. And so then John says again, verse 4, that he will wipe away, agenda item number one, every tear from your eyes. But now listen to what else is absent from the new city. And it's just like he throws it all together in a sentence. You know, you could just scoot right by it, but I don't think we should. He says, and death shall be no more. Like you could just have that as the whole text for today and then do a month-long worship service and everybody'd come, don't you think? And death shall be no more. We're going to celebrate that right on. And neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. It's curious, isn't it? That's how we talk about people who die. We say that they've passed away. I think that's exactly the sense that John is using here. He's saying, guys, I want to tell you something. There is a day coming for death upon which death itself will die. And with it, Mourning, crying, pain. All of the things that afflict us. And all the things that we afflict others with too. To which he adds in verse 5, he says, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. I'm transforming all things. I'm redeeming all things. I'm delivering all things. I'm perfecting all things. That's my wisdom. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And I'm so glad he said that, because this is like... Holy cow, this is too good to believe. He's saying, no, 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 no. believe it. It's trustworthy and true. And don't just believe it. Live in light of it. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, to the thirsty. And I want to pause and say, who is not thirsty for this place? Like, is there anyone on the entire planet that is not thirsty for this place? There are a lot of people who don't know this place exists. There are a lot of people who don't believe this place exists. But we are all of us thirsty for it. We're all of us looking for it. We're many of us trying to create it for ourselves, at least as best we can here. And finding ourselves drinking sand in the process. Finding things more empty, not less. Finding ourselves more thirsty as opposed to satisfied. There is a water that satisfies. It is the water of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And by the way, he's given that water to his church. And the whole world is thirsty for it. And it's a never-ending supply. It's not like we've got to go, well, I don't know if we've got enough for that guy. It's infinite. And what is the promise to the thirsty? I will give from the spring of the water of life. How? Without payment. Now, why does it have to be that way? Because we can't afford it. So Christ has bought it for us. He's the ultimate rich man. And the ultimate servant, and the one who conquers—the idea being sin and death through faith in the one who has conquered it for us—and that's Jesus. Will have this whole heritage that we've been talking about, and more than that, I will be His God, and He will be my son or my daughter. That's our eternal end. Sign me up for that deal, man. That's sweet. But it's not just our eternal end, it's the eternal end that is available to anybody and everybody who comes to faith in the exact same Savior that we believe in, and who has purchased all of that to us and given it to us freely by His grace. It's an astonishing thought. So then what does that call us to do in terms of how we live in this world in light of that end, not just for us, but for them too? Again, I think simply put, at least in a general sense, we need to live like people who lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, which incidentally happens also, and not coincidentally, to be our purpose statement as a church. So what I want to do is to talk about, all right, well, what is our vision then as a church for doing that? Because that's what we've said we talk about today. I'm excited about that. And to do that, I want to call you back to the image of the video if you were here at the beginning that we started with, which is the image of a tree. So I want you to imagine Ria Vista Community Church and Bethany Christian School as a singular tree. A tree that is rooted deeply in God's Word. A tree that is illumined and watered from above by God's Spirit. A tree with a trunk that represents solid biblical, theological, and leadership training. A tree that is connected in vital community by a vast network of branches. A tree that is canopied over by a lush canopy of leaves that represents our worship to God, and a tree that produces abundant fruit of evangelism and outreach in both word and deed ministries, and that contains a fruit that, well, has a seed in it. And the seed is a significant thought in this, because the seed carries the DNA, if you will, of the tree. Isn't that right? Like if you went into somebody's orange grove and you stole one of their oranges and you didn't get shot in the process, right, and you took it home and you cut open the orange, and you took out one of its seeds, and you planted that seed in the backyard, you would not be expecting an apple tree, would you? You'd be expecting a tree that looks just like the tree that you pirated the orange from. And that's what you get. So our vision, very simply put, is to grow our church school tree, right here, to be as large, as strong, as healthy, as vibrant, as powerful, and as well-resourced as we possibly can do on this campus on which we are presently located. And then it is to see God raise up pastors and send out people and money from this church to take the seed of Rio and to go out into our city and go out into our county and to plant new churches, which, if you think about it, will not only create more space for us within the walls that we already have so that we can continue to grow, but even more significantly than that, it will create new churches, new life, new trees to give nourishment to the whole of our city. It's a remarkable thought, and even though that will require an investment in some things in this campus, which we'll talk about in the coming weeks, Here's what it will not require us to do. It will not require us so that we can continue to grow, to go out and find a new big piece of property and redevelop that. So right out of the gate, this is the most cost-effective vision that I believe we could come up with. Secondly, I think it's the most strategic vision. I really do. And here's why. Every church planning statistic indicates this. Let me give you a few. So one guy who's a church study expert surveyed over a thousand churches from 32 countries, six continents, new small churches, he says, averaging 51 in attendance, are 16 times more effective in evangelizing unbelievers than larger, more well-established churches. And I realize, like if you came from Calvary, we do not feel like a large church. You know, you're pretty sure we could all get in the bathroom over there. (laughs) But statistically speaking, do you know what the truth is? This church is in the top 4% in terms of attendance nationally. We're not a new small congregation. More than that, the average new church, listen to this, gains 60 to 80% of its membership from the ranks of people who are not already attending a church. Okay, churches over 10 to 15 years of age, we've been here since 1941, so I think you got that, gain 80 to 90% of their members by church transfer. So if our goal is lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, and that is our goal, church planning, guys, is the most strategically effective way we can do it and the most cost effective. Thirdly, we believe that it's the most biblical plan. Here's why, simple reason. This is what Paul did. Paul would go into a big region. He wants to evangelize the whole region. What was his strategy? Go into the key cities of of the region and plant churches, knowing that as the church grew in the cities, the gospel would emanate out into the whole of the region. And that's exactly what happened. And I will tell you, we have been recognized nationally as a region in South Florida that is hugely important, both nationally and internationally. South Florida is a big deal. Church planting is the best way to transform it. Fourthly, and this was interesting, we've discovered that this plan is the most consistent with our long-term history as a church. As I shared with some of you like a week ago, you know, we were very humbly kind of feeling good about it. You know, we thought, well, the Lord's given us sort of this unique vision. And then we pulled out these big, huge bins full of all of our church history. And we pulled out these beautiful binders that that these people 75 years ago, in some cases, put together on a typewriter and they typed it all out. And they've got every, you know, Sun Sentinel newspaper article about our church and all of these bulletins and things from amazing events and things that used to be done here. And what we realized as we started going through these things is God, has not given us a new vision for this church. He simply revised the one that we were born with originally. This church was planted in 1941. In 1959, years later, they planted Covenant Presbyterian Church. 1956, they planted Plaza Presbyterian Church, which is now First Church West. 1958, Calvary Presbyterian Church. 1959, Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church. And here's how they did it. It's so unique. They sent out pastors and people and money from this church it. Not only that, but fifthly, we believe this plan is most consistent with our recent history as a church. Ten years ago this month, City Church Fort Lauderdale had its first public worship service. Well, where did they come from? How did that happen? Some of you were here. It happened with a pastor from our staff and about 50 to 60 of our people. I remember standing up on that stage, and we were a lot smaller church at that point, and so with a quaking heart and a quivering voice, and thinking, oh, good grief. What is this going to cost? Nevertheless, by faith, we didn't say, okay, you know what? Rick Hunter, that was the pastor. You can gather up who you want and give us a list and then we'll decide from the list and who can go and maybe who can't. We said, no, 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 here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna trust the Lord in this. We're gonna open our doors in this. And after talking about it for a couple of weeks, I literally got up on that stage and I used to stand. So that's new too for you. And I said to everybody, look, here's the deal. We're not gonna do that. We're opening our doors. And if the Lord lays it on your heart to go be a part of this new church plant, we will rejoice with you as we send you off to do it. And we planted that church with a vision, or really it was Rick's vision, but it's what he came to us with. for starting a church planting network, City Church Fort Lauderdale. Well, Rick has held true to that vision, and that church has since planted two other city churches, City Church Wilton Manors, which incidentally is pastored by Phil Atesia, who used to be on our staff, City Church Pompano, pastored by a great young pastor, a guy named Brad Jones, and the pastor now of City Church Fort Lauderdale grew up at this church, Brad Schmidt, while well Rick has moved to an associate pastor position there, and he oversees a church planning network called Renew, which I serve on the board of. And so as we're putting all of this vision together, I realize, good grief, you know, we're talking about planning churches as the Lord leads and, you know, growing within our own walls and all of that stuff. We've kind of already at least been a part of planning a church network. Maybe we need to circle back with these guys that we know and love and have known for a long time. We took them away for three days and two nights to Lake Placid just to pray together and to dream together and to think what we could do together. We meet with them every Tuesday for two hours. Have done that since November to pray together, to speak and to talk into one another's lives and to work through ministry together. It's phenomenal. If you went to one of their churches today, you know what you would have heard a sermon on? The rhythm of grace. Does that sound familiar? Because if it doesn't, just lie and say that it does. Because I'll go nuts. <laughs> like, I will literally go nuts if you don't know what that is, okay? <laughs> but that's awesome. And you would have gotten a, a worship journal. Do you know where the worship journal came from? It came from Ryan Brasington, who stole their bulletin and reworked it. And then we took our reworked version and gave it to them. And they were like, this is genius. This is the missing part of our discipleship. And as of February 21 of this year and moving forward, they're going to be on our preaching schedule. Four churches all preaching on the same thing. All doing the same personal worship. We're going to do Good Friday together. We're hoping to do some prayer events together. They want to come to Haiti with us. Which incidentally is very much consistent With what the Lord is doing overall in our city this past Thursday, I had a meeting, this is a third of its kind, with like 100, 150 pastors. Cross-denominationally, cross-racially, cross everything that could possibly divide us. Three initiatives for mission together in our city this year. God is doing a work of collaboration. And all that we're talking about is very, very consistent with that. Sixthly, and finally, we believe that this plan is most consistent with who God has made us to be. So let me speak about some of the characteristics I think he has created here. He has given us, and I'm going to say this, an other's first ethic. I hope that you have felt that and experienced it. And what I mean by that is this, that when we look at the resources that we have, we think outside of ourselves before we think about ourselves. And I think the Rio house is probably the best example of that. You know, a few years back, we raised a bunch of money at the end of the year when we need it the most, not going to lie. And everybody gave sacrificially to it and it was awesome and we purchased a fourplex and renovated it with so many people's help both monetarily and in kind. It was amazing and we dedicated that in partnership with Hope South Florida to helping single moms who don't have anywhere else to live have a place to live and find their way out of that hole. About 14 months ago, if you looked at me, my hair was three-eighths of an inch long. Do you remember that? I can assure you that there is one guy here who will never forget it. Why? Because Carter is crazy. It's what I had to do to get him to cut his hair. All right, not really, but it did work for him. I'm not going to lie. To raise money for the Grace Home, a first of its kind assisted living facility that we put together and largely funded right out of here in Haiti in partnership with Mission of Hope. Let me mix metaphors for you. We don't want to be, and we are not authentically, and I think I can say that with great credibility, a reservoir of resources, pulling it for ourselves. That is water that grows stagnant. We're a river of resources out into the community and out into the world. And what we're talking about with the Mustard Seed Campaign is not pooling them for ourselves. It's widening our banks. It's deepening our rivers. It's looking beyond three years to the next 53 years and saying, we want to be a bigger river through this church and through the churches that we're able to plant. So I think it's consistent with who God has made us to be. Secondly, I think that's true in regard to our sense of community. I mean, just to be crass, I think that part of the secret sauce of this place is the size of this place. And that if we grew too big, it should be something about who we are that we would lose. We preserve that in planting churches. We really believe that we can't grow here to about more than 1,000. We had 721 people last week, so that kind of gives you an idea of our size in terms of average attendance. We don't think we can grow beyond 1,000 and maintain that sort of special community that all of us love about this place, and that feels, at least to me, I don't get out a lot, as unique. But I'll tell you right now, we can't grow to a 1,000 without the kind of space that we're looking at. We don't have the office space for that. We don't have the meeting space for that. We have completely pushed our facilities, which is good news, as a church and as a school, to the limits. And the last thing that I think has become true of us is that we've stopped asking the question of what do we want, and we've replaced it with a question of what do we need. So let me just be plain. What we need is not just more space, but more effective space. We need more office space if we're going to see this vision happen. We have staff that have been officed all over this campus in what used to be literally closets, and they're all happy with that. That's no problem. But we're out of space. like We can't add anyone and put them anywhere at this point. So we need that. We need more meeting space. If you're trying to schedule meeting space around here, you're already sold on that idea. You understand that. We need a permanent home for our children and family ministries. It's our largest volunteer-driven ministry by far as a church, and they have been over at the school gym. And we'd love to be able to open that space up completely for the gym, move them to this side of the street, take them off of a cart and out of a closet and give them a dedicated place right here on this campus. When you come in with your kids, you can take them both to wherever they need to go on this side of the street as opposed to on both sides of the street and create a large meeting space that will take pressure off our fellowship hall, off this room, and off the attic, which, as you learned last week, if you were here, was used 518 times officially last year. So we need that. We need three more classrooms for Bethany Christian School so that we can have two grades per class that go all the way up to fifth grade. We already have it coming through the tube, like the demand is there. And what that opens up is ministry five day a week to children and families for like 60 more kids and however many more families that represents. But for the business people, I want to say this as well. It represents revenue. It's an investment that makes money for our school. We need greater nursery space and a larger playground for both the church and school. We have twice as many kids on our waiting list for five-day-a-week nursery as we have capacity to have them. We had a mom show up at like 5.30 in the morning or something to wait outside Sandy's office so that she can be one of the first to sign up. Great demand, and we need that both for the church and the school. We need to fix our south parking lot. Do I need to spend a lot of time on that, or can I just move on? (laughs) Amen, brother. Like, if you don't know what that's all about... Just throw it in four-wheel drive and drive through it before you leave today, okay? Go straight to the tire place. They'll realign your wheels for you. You'll be fine, all right? 30 bucks, you'll get the message. Lastly, we need to update this room and that room. Bottom line, what we need to do is to take the campus that good and godly people since 1941 have at great sacrifice to them, been building and creating and have handed to us, and we just need to finish it. Finish the job. And in doing so, create a platform from which we can grow the largest, strongest, healthiest, most vibrant, okay, most well-resourced church planting tree that we can be right here. So I think that's one of the ways that we as a people can live today in light of the end, not just for us. But for everybody who knows Christ, guys, we have the water. <laughs> and they are thirsty. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for our Savior. God, we thank you for the living water that alone is found in him. We thank you, Lord, that by your Spirit, you have sovereignly chosen to pour that into our hearts and into our lives. God, for reasons known only to you, you have delivered us. You are a delivering God. You are a redeeming God. You're not a God that wipes out and starts from scratch. You're a God that takes and displays His great glory and manifest wisdom and spectacular love by mending the broken, by healing the sick, by taking us and making us new. Lord, we praise you for the new life that is ours by your grace. And we pray that you will enhance our ability to be a place that proclaims to this city and to the world that new life. Make us people who are water carriers for you. And make us a church, Lord, that pours out into this community your great goodness, generosity, and gospel. Do these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.